Having a versatile, high-quality piece of clothing feels great, but having a whole closet full of favorites feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Raise your hand if you'd like to bid farewell to 2020. Now, use that same hand to celebrate the new year with Drizzly. Compare prices on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits like Guinness, Bailey's, and Kettle One. Then get them delivered to your door in under 60 minutes. Right now, Drizzly is giving new customers $5 off their first order. Enter promo code NEWYOU at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com. Hello, everyone. This is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. Byzantium, as you may know, is the name historians gave to what survived of the Roman Empire after the fall of the West. Talk about a period filled with fake history. You may have heard that the Byzantines weren't really Romans, that they were effeminate and obsessed with luxury, that they specialised in complicated and needless bureaucracy. Almost none of that is true. And if you want to hear how the tough-as-nails descendants of the ancient Romans provided a shield for European civilization for a thousand years then check out thehistoryofbyzantium.com or find it in iTunes. But for now, it's time for a different slice of our fake history. In 2006, a wealthy Chinese commercial lawyer named Louis Gong publicly unveiled something that he was sure would completely revolutionize the way people understood the history of the planet. At a much-publicized event in Beijing, Louis Gang formally presented a previously unknown map of the world. He claimed that he had come into possession of the map in 2001 after buying it off a collector who had assumed it was a forgery. But after reading Gavin Menzies' blockbuster, 1421, the year China discovered America, Louis Gong had become convinced that this map was far more significant. The inscriptions on the map declared that it was a 1763 copy of an original that had been produced in 1418 in China. Most importantly, the map very clearly depicts all of the world's continents, including North America, South America, Australia, and even Antarctica. If this map was indeed originally produced in 1418, it would strongly suggest that the Chinese had in fact circumnavigated the globe some 100 years before the voyages of Ferdinand Magellan. This map could prove that Gavin Menzies had been essentially correct in his thesis that the fleets of Admiral Zheng He had successfully visited and mapped all of the world's continents well before Europeans. Louis Gong's revelation reignited the debate around Menzies' controversial theory. For the true believers, this was exactly the proof that they were looking for. A Chinese document which had somehow survived the fires of the Mandarin Purge and enshrined the collected geographical knowledge of Zheng He's fleet. 
but nothing connected to Menzies is ever free from controversy. And almost as soon as the map was revealed, a host of experts emerged to decry the map as a forgery. Chief among these naysayers was Dr. Jeff Wade, an expert in Chinese history who has positioned himself as a kind of anti-Menzies in the years following the publication of 1421. To debunk the map, he brought with him a veritable Justice League of Chinese cartographic experts, including Jin Guoping, Zhu Zhenhe, Gong Jinyang, and Hu Yangfang. Their contention was that the map was completely out of keeping with Ming-era cartography. It was full of strange grammatical errors, it confused modern Chinese with classical Mandarin in the annotations, and it incorporated a number of cartographic elements that were obviously European. To their eyes, the maps appeared to have been copied from the Jesuit maps that had been produced in China in the 1600s. They claimed that Louis Gong's bombshell discovery was most likely a 21st century forgery created specifically to bolster the claims made by Menzies in his controversial book. Menzies and Gong soon fired back, citing their own experts who believed the map was legitimate. But the firefight was far from over. Gong eventually allowed a carbon dating lab in New Zealand to test a fragment of paper from the map to prove that it had not been a recent forgery. Sure enough, the lab eventually revealed that the paper could be dated to the mid to late 1700s, which is consistent with the dating on the map. But then came the accusation from Wade that the piece of paper that had been sent to the lab may not have been taken from the map. They might have just sent in a piece of paper that they knew was over 300 years old. And the debate rages on. You see, Menzies' book has courted more controversy than perhaps any other historical work in recent memory. You see, most books that are written off as pseudo-history, like, say, the ancient alien theories of Eric von Daniken or the occultist conspiracies of Trevor Ravenscroft, don't even warrant the attention of mainstream academic historians. Their claims are so rooted in the paranormal that most academics don't waste their time debunking them. But Menzies' book, on the other hand, has elicited no shortage of scholarly articles written in opposition to his claims. But why? You see, Menzies is just scholarly enough to get the attention of a usually skeptical history buff. He has just enough evidence to make even the most critical thinker at least consider his points. He also has just enough support from people with PhDs to make you take a second look. Perhaps Menzies 1421 has something to it after all. Or, perhaps, he's just the most artful pseudo-historian to ever be published. Because honestly, the deeper you look into 1421, the wackier it gets. This is Our Fake History. Episode 27, Did the Chinese Beat Columbus to the New World? Part 2. 
Hello, and welcome to Our Fake History. My name is Sebastian Major, and this is the podcast where we look at historical myths and try and determine what's fact, what's fiction, and what is such a good story that it simply must be told. This week, we'll be concluding our look at the so-called 1421 Hypothesis. This is the theory put forward by the former submarine commander Gavin Menzies that a fleet of Chinese junks under the command of the Admiral Zheng He managed to circumnavigate the globe and visit every continent except Europe many decades before Europeans would even consider attempting similar feats of navigation. Now, this is part two of this series, so if you haven't heard part one, then you may want to go back and listen to that now. In the first part, I tried to give some important historical context about Ming China, court eunuchs, and medieval Chinese navigation. I also took on some of the evidence that Gavin Menzies used to support his theory that the fleet of Zheng He had managed to successfully round the Cape of Good Hope. At the end of that first episode, I basically came to the conclusion that Menzies' entire theory rested on a rather shaky foundation. To even accept that the fleet of Zheng He rounded the tip of Africa, you have to be comfortable with some very creative readings of medieval maps, you need to disregard what's written in the existent Chinese sources, and you have to be okay with the idea that a Venetian explorer hitched a ride on a Chinese junk that took him around the world, and he chose to never speak of it again. To my mind, any critical thinker would pitch the entire 1421 thesis right then and there. So, what's the point of a part two, then? I mean, if the theory is already debunked, why wade deeper into it for another 40 minutes? Well, my friends, it's because the theory gets so much weirder. As Menzies' book progresses, he seems to be emboldened by every flimsy conclusion he reaches. So he reaches even further, and eventually, things get bananas— By the end of 1421, almost every ancient mystery, every odd structure, every quirk of local zoology the world over is explained by Menzies as the result of the great unheralded voyages of the treasure ships. Now, this is an important thing to understand about Menzies and the 1421 hypothesis. It is grandiose. When I first heard that there was a theory that the Chinese had managed to make it to North America well before Columbus, I had assumed that maybe there was some archaeological evidence on the Pacific coast that suggested incredible but plausible trans-Pacific voyages. I was even willing to believe that the junks had made it out of the Indian Ocean and touched the eastern shores of the New World. But Menzies simply does not content himself with what seems plausible. His mission seems to be to convince the reader of the absolutely bonkers. So let's venture further into the world of 1421 and see just how deep this rabbit hole goes.
When we last left the fleet of Zheng He, they'd just rounded the Cape of Good Hope and had headed north to the Cape Verde Islands. It's from this launching point that Menzies hypothesizes that the Chinese junks made their way to the Americas. Now, there's an important caveat that we need to make clear. Menzies does not claim that the Admiral Zheng He was with the fleet at this point. You see, all available evidence tells us that Zheng He himself only sailed as far as Calicut, India on this sixth voyage. He returned home to China in November of 1421. So Menzies theorizes that the most daring legs of these voyages, those that would take the junks into uncharted waters, were not undertaken by Zheng He himself, but instead his rear admirals Zhu Man, Zhu Wen, and Hong Bao. So keep that in mind. For Menzi's whole theory to work, we have to accept that the greatest voyage ever undertaken by Zheng He's fleet happened without Zheng He. Once again, this is something that doesn't necessarily disprove Menzi's theory, but it just doesn't feel right. But fair enough, let's play along. The fleet, now commanded by the three rear admirals, have now done the impossible. They have entered the Atlantic Ocean. So now that they're in this body of water that's never before been explored by Chinese mariners, what do you think they do? Well, the only logical thing when in an uncharted ocean, split up the fleet. Yes, Menzies theorizes that the admirals split the fleet into three distinct groups, either because they'd become separated by some fluke or they did it on purpose to explore more of this unknown morass of ocean. What evidence does Menzies give of this split? Well, not much. Instead, he relies on his patented circular logic. The feats of navigation Menzies claims took place in these next three years are literally impossible for one group of boats. So, how do you solve that problem? Easy. The fleet simply had to have been broken into three groups or else the rest doesn't make sense. To believe the rest of the story, you have to believe that there were three groups of boats. It's a terrible argument, but sure, let's just see where this takes us. According to Menzies, the fleets led by Zhu Man and Hong Bao headed to South America, landing first in what is today Venezuela and then steadily making their way south down the coast of Brazil until eventually making their way all the way to the Straits of Magellan nearly 100 years before their namesake. If this really happened, it would have been an incredible and no doubt harrowing journey. Anyone who's listened to my show on Magellan knows that the waters off the coast of Argentina are notoriously stormy. Magellan's ships were harangued by brutal storms his entire journey, culminating in the loss of one of his ships during a particularly nasty tempest. So what evidence does Menzies provide that the Chinese made this undoubtedly intense journey? Well, once again, we turn to a strange 16th century map, the always controversial Piri Res map. This map was created in 1513 by an admiral for the Ottoman Turks, known to history as Piri Res. Only about a third of the map still exists today, and it depicts the west coast of Africa, some islands in the Caribbean, the coast of Brazil, and most interestingly, the southern coast of South America, and a landmass that some believe may be Antarctica. 
To get a sense of this, you really need to take a look at the map yourself. So I encourage you to go to ourfakehistory.com where it will be on the page for this episode. I'll also have it posted on the Facebook page. I know it can sometimes be really difficult to visualize a map without having it directly in front of you. So go take a look. I think it will actually really help you understand what I'm talking about. Now, the map was apparently compiled by Piri Ress using dozens of the most up-to-date charts in the world. Many experts assume that the accuracy with which he depicts the coast of Brazil suggests that he had access to what would have been newly created Portuguese maps. But the mysterious southern landmasses at the bottom of the map have led some to speculate that Piri Res had access to documents that had accurately charted Antarctica. Even more amazing, some have contended that the shoreline that was charted would have been covered by thick layers of ice, so getting an accurate sense of the coastline would have been especially difficult. Who could have achieved such a feat? Well, if you ask authors like Graham Hancock, they'll tell you that there's only one reasonable answer. Aliens. Yes, paranormal researchers have contended that Piri Ress was actually working from ancient maps that had been compiled by extraterrestrial visitors. Ancient aliens photographed Earth from space and then gave that information to early humans. This information then somehow got into the hands of Piri Ress, who incorporated it into his map. So there's that theory. But of course, Gavin Menzies would never go in for something so preposterous. Instead, he proposes that the fleet led by Hong Bao decided that it would be a good idea to break away from Zuman's fleet somewhere around the Straits of Magellan and head south to the Antarctic. There, they sailed without incident, mapping the shores of the southernmost continent. According to Menzies, the only way Piri Ress could have made his famous map was if he had access to Chinese charts that would have been created on this journey. How did Ress get these charts? Well, perhaps they were also in possession of Niccolo de Conti, who brought them back to Europe. Or perhaps they made their way from China to the Ottoman Empire in the decades that followed the journey. But once again, we have another annoying case of circular logic. For Menzies, the Piri Res map proves that the Chinese visited and mapped the coasts of both South America and Antarctica because if they didn't, then the Piri Res map would not exist. It's yet another terrible argument. It also assumes that there are no more reasonable explanations for the Piri Res map. I would contend that the Piri Res map is not some unexplained mystery. First of all, the Piri Res map is not some incredibly accurate piece of cartography. It gets all sorts of things wrong. The Caribbean is a mess, and many islands are either not in the right place or oriented in the wrong direction. The southern coast of South America is completely wrong and is depicted as connecting to the landmass that many have assumed is Antarctica. There's also no Strait of Magellan. With this in mind, the suggestion that Piri Ress was working from either super-accurate Chinese charts or documents given to mankind by ancient aliens quickly falls apart. If the Admiral Hong Bao had charted the coast of Patagonia and Antarctica so accurately, then why is Piri Ress making so many errors? At the very least, Hong Bao would not have drawn South America connecting with Antarctica— 
So if we are expected to believe that Piri Ress had these charts, then why would he make these really obvious mistakes? The argument seems to be that the Chinese made super accurate charts of Antarctica, a continent that would not be mapped again until the 1800s. These charts then somehow got into the hands of Piri Res, and then he only uses half of the information that's on the charts. That's stupid. <laughs> There's really no other way to say it. That is stupid. To me, it seems clear that Piri Res was doing the best with what he had, and what he had were incomplete Portuguese and Spanish charts. As a result, some areas like the coast of Brazil, which had been more thoroughly explored by 1513, are depicted accurately, and other areas like the coast of modern Argentina are not, simply because there were not good maps for him to go on. To me, it looks like the work of someone who was making educated guesses based on imperfect information, not someone who had access to hyper-accurate maps and chose to use them sometimes and then ignore them others. In other words, to use the Piri Res map as evidence of a Chinese presence in South America is pretty ridiculous. If you're still willing to suspend your disbelief, here's what Gavin Menzies says happens next. After splitting up at the Straits of Magellan, the fleets of Hongbao and Zhu Man take alternate routes to, wait for it, Australia. Hongbao takes a southerly route heading east along the shores of the Antarctic before swinging north and hitting the west coast of Australia. Zhu Man, on the other hand, navigates the perilous Straits of Magellan heads north along the coast of Chile, and then sets off west along the Humboldt Current. Which, by the way, if you're playing the Our Fake History drinking game, I think you have to take a shot now because I mentioned the Humboldt Current. I never thought an ocean current would get so many mentions in a history podcast. Anyway, eventually, Juman's fleet would arrive in New Zealand cross the Tasman Sea, and eventually wind up on the eastern coast of Australia. Now, the proof that Menzies uses for this truly audacious claim may be some of the sketchiest he employs in the entire book. Now, to be fair, he does use a few different arguments, but I'm just going to focus on one of the most ludicrous. So, on the Piri Res map, there are a series of fanciful illustrations depicting creatures that Ress claims live in South America. Now, this was pretty common for maps of the time. I'm sure you've all seen old maps decorated with sea monsters and other strange mythical beasts. Well, this one is no different. Only Menzies contends that all of these little cartoons actually depict real animals. Now, to be fair, there are two images of cow-like creatures that roughly correlate to real-life animals that could be found in Argentina. But there's also an image of a man whose face is in his chest. 
You might remember that fun little character as one of the fictional island people that John de Mandeville wrote about in the 1300s. Menzies, on the other hand, interprets that drawing as a realistic depiction of a South American aboriginal. He doesn't have a face in his chest, says Menzies. He's just squatting down so his beard covers his genitals. The Muslim author of the map was only trying to convey some modesty. Okay, whatever. But the more important image is the little creature beside Menzies' squatting man. This is a little drawing of something that looks like a man with the face of a dog. I have a magnified detail of this little cartoon up on the website and on the Facebook group if you want to check it out. Now, for most people, this dog-faced man would be the same kind of fanciful doodle that's adorned a million maps. But for our man Gavin Menzies, this is a clue. Beside the drawing, Piri Ress includes the following annotation. Quote, In this place, there are wild beasts of this shape. These beasts attain a length of seven spans, yet it's said that they are harmless souls. End quote. So now Menzies is on a hunt for a creature that's seven meters tall, has the body of a man, and the head of a dog. In the pages of 1421, he tells us that he gets on the horn and starts calling around to natural history museums in Patagonia. Most of them laugh at him, but then one museum in southern Chile tells him that the only creature that kind of matches that description was the prehistoric giant sloth known as the Mylodon. For Menzies, this just might be the gentle giant of seven meters that he was looking for. Now, the scientific consensus on the Mylodon is that it went extinct some 10,000 years ago. Many believe they were hunted out of existence not long after the first humans arrived in Patagonia. But here's the thing. There have been some remarkably well-preserved Mylodon remains, some of which were actually found by Charles Darwin when he first came to the region on the HMS Beagle in the 1800s. These remains, and other finds that were incredibly well-preserved, led to the mistaken belief that Mylodons were in fact still around at the time of Darwin, and a hidden population may have survived right up until the modern era. Now, radiocarbon tests on these incredibly well-preserved hides have conclusively shown that they are roughly 10,000 years old. The reason that these Mylodon carcasses had remained so well-preserved was because of the unique climactic conditions in Patagonia and the caves where these animals happened to die. So, now most of the Mylodon hunters have given up the ghost. Except, of course, for Gavin Menzies. He doesn't even mention that research into the real age of the Mylodon and simply takes the fact that Darwin found some fresh-looking Mylodon remains as proof that they were still around in the 1800s. And if they were around in the 1800s, then they were definitely around in the 1400s when Hongbao and Zhu Man came sailing through. And because we know that the fleets of Zheng He were known to bring exotic animals back to court, Remember that fancy giraffe that got passed off as a mythical creature? Then Menzies thinks it's safe to assume that men from these Chinese junks were sent ashore and successfully captured a number of giant sloths and brought them aboard the ships. They were then sure to stock up on lots of leafy greens for their new monstrous pets. 
and then they set off across the largest ocean on planet Earth. I'm not making this up, guys. Gavin Menzies really seems to believe that the Chinese carried a cargo of prehistoric animals around with them. We are like two steps away from Bigfoot right now. But why does he go to such trouble to demonstrate, disingenuously I might add, that this was possible? That the Chinese encountered mylodons in South America? Well, it helps him make two points. His first point is that only people who had actually visited South America could have known about this uniquely South American creature. A mylodon appears on the Piri Res map because clearly he was working from Chinese records that also seem to contain some helpful zoological information. Secondly, the mylodons help him build the case that the Chinese made it to Australia. All right, so follow me. In the small town of Gympie, Queensland, north of Brisbane, there's a mysterious group of carvings that have been associated with a nearby structure known as the Gympie Pyramid. One of these carvings, according to Menzies, looks like a man with a dog's head. Therefore, it must have been a mylodon. The Chinese must have made it to Australia. A mylodon must have gotten loose from their boats. And bing, bang, boom, you've got the carving of a dog-headed man. One weird dog-headed carving, and you have some serious proof that the Chinese were sailing around the world, luring giant animals into their boats, and then releasing them on new continents. This argument is so weird, and the conclusions drawn are so grandiose, that it's amazing that anyone has taken Menzies seriously at all. But here's his trick. He doesn't lead with the giant sloth argument. To get to that little nugget, you have already needed to travel with him halfway around the world. By the time you hit the mylodons, you're either in or you're not. If you've been convinced by Menzies up to that point, then the giant sloth is just another whimsical possibility. But for me, this is totally where the 1421 hypothesis jumps the shark. He might as well have said that the Chinese found a stegosaurus in Patagonia. Remember Admiral Zhu Wen? He was that third rear admiral who split off from the main fleet back at the Cape Verde Islands. Well, as you might imagine, Menzies' claims about his voyage are just as off the wall as his claims about the other two fleets. Menzies has them getting shipwrecked in the Caribbean before forming colonies in Cuba, Florida, and my personal favorite, Rhode Island. He then claims that after losing hundreds or potentially thousands of men in these shipwrecks, Zhu Wen becomes set on finding the North Pole. As a result, half of his remaining fleet sets off north along the coast of Greenland. Along the way, they make some pit stops to smelt some metals, as you do on a long pointless journey into the inhospitable Arctic. Then Menzies makes an even more astounding claim. To get back to China... 
Zhu Wen decides to take a route around the Arctic Circle. Yes, that's correct. It's Menzies' belief that boats built in the 1400s were able to navigate along the north coast of Russia and make it back to port in China. Do I even have to explain how crazy this is? This is absolutely nuts. And this is indicative of one of Menzies' greatest sins when it comes to the treasure ships. He basically gives these boats superpowers. I think he gets away with it because his initial premise that European historians have traditionally sold Chinese mariners short is essentially correct. It's true that the treasure ships were impressive vessels. Most sources seem to suggest that they were considerably larger and better provisioned than European boats from that same period. The treasure ships were remarkable crafts, especially for medieval times. But Menzies wants to believe that they could easily perform feats that would not be repeated again for centuries. The first confirmed voyage to travel the entire Northeast Passage, that's the northerly route along the coast of Russia, was in 1878. To have the Chinese do it in 1421 is preposterous. Now, as you might imagine, Menzies provides all sorts of shady evidence for the Zhu Wen mission as well. Once again, we see him employ his typical bag of tricks. He has a puzzling European map that he contends could only be produced with access to Chinese charts. He also points to some strange natural phenomena and some mysterious buildings that he's sure were created by Chinese mariners in Zhu Wen's fleet. I could get into the ins and outs of each individual piece of evidence, but after a while, it gets a bit exhausting. Almost all of Menzies' so-called proof is created using his signature blend of wild assumptions and circular logic. This is simply not how history is done. When you start the process of unraveling the 1421 thesis, it's very easy to get tangled in the strange web of logic that holds the whole thing together. But perhaps we should take a step back and look at two major problems right at the heart of Gavin Menzies' entire hypothesis. These criticisms were originally made by historian Robert Finley in his Tour de Force Takedown of 1421 in the Journal of World History that appeared in 2004. Honestly, if you want to read a really great beat-for-beat deconstruction of this book, look no further than Finley's article, How Not to Rewrite History. One of the first issues is Menzi's contention that there are a lack of sources when it comes to the voyages of Zheng He. The purges carried out by the Mandarins in the mid-1400s led to the destruction of all the hard documentary evidence related to these fantastic voyages. Or at least, so says Menzies. Menzies then uses this lack of information as grounds to concoct an elaborate theory about what was going on in these, quote, lost years. But this idea that there's a severe lack of sources about the voyages isn't really true. First, we have Zheng He's inscription at the Temple of the Celestial Spouse that I mentioned in the first episode. On that inscription, he very specifically lists every place his fleet visited. It's an impressive list, but the furthest flung place is Mogadishu in what is today Somalia. So to claim that the fleets went any further is essentially to say that Zheng He himself is hiding something. Secondly, 
there actually was a history of Zheng He's voyages that was written by a contemporary and has survived. This is the Yingyai Shenlan, or the Overall Survey of the Ocean Shores, by Ma Huan. Ma Huan himself accompanied Zheng He on three of his seven voyages, including the voyage of 1421 that has so fascinated Gavin Menzies. In his book, he very carefully explains all the countries visited by Zheng He, complete with detailed descriptions of the plants, animals, people, and cultures encountered. According to Ma Huan, the most faraway country reached on that 1421 voyage was Hormuz, which roughly aligns with the modern country of the United Arab Emirates. Now, Menzies claims that the reason that Mahuan doesn't mention the most mind-blowing journeys in human history, voyages that took the Chinese around the world, is because he personally returned to China after voyaging as far as Calicut, India. Therefore, he would not have personally known about these voyages, so they were not included in his book. But as Finley and other historians have pointed out, Menzi's assumption completely misunderstands the writings of Mahuan. Mahuan's book wasn't just a personal travelogue. It was meant to be an encyclopedia of all the knowledge gathered by the voyages of Zhen He. He often wrote about places that he did not personally travel based on accounts from other mariners on the voyages. For instance, on that 1421 voyage, Mahuan personally did not sail as far as the Persian Gulf, but he still writes about the Persian Gulf in his book. We know that Mahuan was constantly revising and adding to his book long after the voyages of Zheng He in order to include the most possible detail about the places explored by the Chinese fleet. His final draft was only ready for publication in 1451, only after he had been able to compile as much information as he could on voyages that he himself had not been on. Then after its publication, Mahuan's overall survey of the ocean shores became a bit of a hit in Ming China. Many copies were made and lots have survived to today. At the very least, his version of Zheng He's voyages did not seem to be purged by paranoid mandarins. Dr. Adam Smith, the assistant curator in the Asian section of the Penn Museum, has also pointed out that there is a map of Zheng He's voyages that appears in a 1621 Chinese military manual called the Treaties on Military Preparedness. Now, unlike all the other maps we've mentioned, this map was actually made by Chinese people, and it actually follows the conventions of Ming-era cartography. Maps in Ming China were produced on long scrolls. The images on the scroll followed the details of the shoreline along the path to your given destination. They were completely unlike European charts that give you a massive overview of a large area. Instead, the map started in your starting place, in this case, the harbor of Nanjing, and then traced a steady line towards the final destination. Where was the most faraway place depicted on this map? You guessed it, Mogadishu. According to Dr. Smith, all research seems to show that this map is the most accurate depiction of Zheng He's voyages. And notably, there's nothing about the Cape of Good Hope, the continents of North and South America, the Antarctic, or a Northeast Passage along the North Coast of Russia. 
there's not even one little cartoon of a lonely Mylodon anywhere to be found. What does Gavin Menzies do with all this information? He ignores it wholesale. Anything that contradicts or complicates his pet theory is either ignored, misrepresented, or scoffed at as a pernicious attack from jealous mainstream academics. Indeed, Menzies' distaste for the establishment and professional historians seems to be at the very heart of his allure. Any criticism leveled against him, he's able to shrug off, because surely it was drummed up by the corrupt mainstream academics who have a personal stake in old, tired narratives that Europe did everything first. In Menzies' world, the establishment is rotten, inflexible, and are threatened by a visionary like himself who's unafraid to make bold claims and change the status quo. Any attempt to fact-check him is derided as disingenuous propaganda. In this way, Menzies is very similar to a certain American presidential candidate that I will choose not to name. You see, much like his historical theories, Menzies' criticisms of mainstream history might be based on a kernel of truth, but they're exaggerated to the point of being unreasonable. It is true that sometimes historians can get married to a certain narrative or a certain analytic approach. And it's also true that certain ideas can fall in and out of popularity. There are historical fads. It can also be true that sometimes new ideas will be put under greater scrutiny. But it is a complete misunderstanding of what scholarship is to suggest that professional historians aren't open to new ideas, new interpretations, and above all else, new evidence. On the contrary, they love this stuff. You want to get a historian excited? Tell them you just unearthed a new primary source that completely changes what they thought about their favorite subject. But you got to know that the first thing they're going to ask is, can it be verified? Is it legit? How well does it fit in with what we already know? The whole discipline of history is the constant rewriting of a story that you thought you knew. The entire discipline is dedicated to making new discoveries about the past, challenging old orthodoxies, and finding new ways to examine old things. The reason mainstream historians don't like Gavin Menzies isn't because he's rudely upset the apple cart of history. It's because he's a hack. He's not doing history correctly. He has no real evidence. All he has are outrageous claims, sketchy assumptions, and paranormal clickbait. This, my friends, is pseudo-history of the highest caliber. Now, with all that said, there may be one good thing that has come out of the popularity of 1421. And that is that Western history buffs all of a sudden took an interest in Chinese history in a way they'd never done before. The effort to discredit Menzies has meant that there's more information about Ming China, Chinese navigation, and Zheng He available in English than ever. The truth is that before Menzies, the only people who knew the name Zheng He outside of China were a handful of experts. Now he's in the mix anytime history's greatest explorers are being discussed. Menzies' claims should be roundly dismissed. But the greatness of Zheng He and his fleet of treasure ships should not. His exploration of the Indian Ocean and the sophistication of his junks are something worth celebrating. And hopefully, 
Once the noise generated by Menzies dies down, more people in the West will come to appreciate the real innovations made by Chinese navigators. But in the meantime, if anyone ever says, hey, isn't it true that the Chinese made it to North America before Columbus? You can answer with a robust no. And if they ask you why, there's really only one word you have to say. Mylodon. Okay, that's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. Join us again in two weeks' time when we will look at yet another historical myth. But before we go this week, I want to let everyone know that the extra episodes are back and they are ready to download. So, if you're new to the show, you might not know about these extra episodes. But back in December of last year, I created two shows. One called More Ninjas and one called What Did Constantine Really See in the Sky? One was obviously a sequel to our Ninjas show, and the other was looking at the first Christian emperor of the Roman Empire. Now, both of these shows were for sale on our old website, but when I changed websites, they came down and they no longer were available. Well, now they're back and it's easier to get them than ever. So if you missed them the first time around, you might want to go download them. All you have to do is go to OurFakeHistory.com, look for the link that says Buy Extra Shows, click on it, it will take you directly to OurFakeHistory.Bandcamp.com, and click on the show you want, pay the money, boom, you got an extra show. So much easier than the old way, which I won't even mention right now. But for those of you who have already downloaded the extra shows or for anyone else out there that wants to support us, a really easy way is to go to the website and click on the Donate to OFH button and drop a few dollars into the tip jar. If you like what you're hearing, then think about supporting the show. It really helps us keep the lights on around here. Or if you want a completely free way to support the show, go to iTunes or any other podcast app where you can rate and review the show and do just that. The ratings and the reviews help us get seen by more people. So please go and rate and review the show if you have not done that already. Before we go this week, I'd like to say another thank you to Mr. Robin Pearson. He's the host of the History of Byzantium podcast, who put that really cool intro at the beginning of our show today. If you're not listening to the History of Byzantium, it's an excellent history podcast that picks up where the history of Rome left off and goes deeper into the Byzantine age. It's great, and Robin is one of the smoothest narrators that I think is out there right now in history podcasting. That voice at the beginning of the podcast, come on, we all know it. It was very sexy. So go check out the history of Byzantium. If you're looking for more history podcasts, then I'd also like to direct your attention to a dark myths show called Inward Empire. Inward Empire is an American history podcast that looks at the ideas and the ideology that have motivated the American project. I think it's especially good listening right now in an election season when America seems poised on yet another crossroads in its history. So please go to darkmyths.org and check out Inward Empire or find them on iTunes or any other podcast app. 
As always, the theme music for the show comes to us from Dirty Church. You can check out Dirty Church at dirtychurch.bandcamp.com. All the other music that you heard on the show today was written and recorded by me. My name is Sebastian Major, and remember, just because it didn't happen doesn't mean it isn't real. gift that never gets returned trick question it's three gifts beer wine and spirits and with drizzly you can compare prices from local liquor stores then send gifts like don julio crown royal and bullet right to your loved one's doors in under 60 minutes right now drizzly is giving all new customers five dollars off their first order just enter promo code jingle at checkout download the drizzly app or go to drizzly.com that's d-r-i-z-l-y.com